You're listening to The Local Maximum, episode 282. Time to expand your perspective. Welcome to The Local Maximum. Now, here's your host, Max Farr. Welcome, everyone. Welcome. You have reached another Local Maximum. It may be a comforting thought to believe that someone or some small group of people is in charge. And when there are problems, it's their fault. And, but they could also fix things if they wanted to. Well, what if no one is in charge? What if all of our systems take on a life of their own and no single entity can control how things turn out? Well, this is the idea explored by my next guest who gives, in my view, a convincing case for why our so-called big tech companies, the ones controlling vast social and information networks, don't have as much control over the outcomes of their products as we would think. I had David Auerbach on the show four years ago for his book, Bitwise, and we discussed the issues surrounding all of our information being digitized and being interpreted by machines. And this week, I had a really fascinating discussion to follow up on that, and I look forward to sharing it with you. My next guest is a former software engineer at places like Google and Microsoft and has transitioned into a successful author, a successful writing career as an author. He recently released the book Meganets, How Digital Forces Commandeer Our Daily Lives and Inner Realities. David Auerbach, you've reached the local maximum. Welcome to the show. Hello, thanks for having me. All right, so today we're talking about your new book, pretty hot off the press, you know, probably a few weeks. It's called uh, Meganets, uh, How Digital Forces Beyond Our Control Commandeer Our Daily Lives and Inner Realities. So um, let's, uh, so first of all, how long has this been out? I, I, I think I got an early copy, so that was kind of cool. Yeah. Thank you for that. Came out in the, uh, came out in mid-March. All right, all right. So, um, I guess my first question is, how did you come up with or find this term meganet? Did you come up with it? Was it something existing? And what is it that separates a meganet from something from like a, a, a simpler controlled network? Like, how do you tell if you're dealing with a meganet? Yeah, the uh, the, the implicit question here is why a new word? Uh, yes. Question. Um, and um, yeah, it's it's my word. Uh, I found out after after I published it that uh, apparently about twenty five years used ago used it. Uh, so, but you know nothing is ever new under the sun. Uh, so, I'd spent a long time thinking about what exactly is going on with humanity and technology, and what exactly network life is doing to us, and why it is that so many of the problems we're confronting as far as making online life habitable, productive, pleasant, you name it, uh, or simply organized and non-chaotic seem to run aground. Why people are so dissatisfied with the state of things and yet why that dissatisfaction does not seem to produce positive change. And ultimately, I felt like we weren't looking at these systems you know, in the right way, that we saw it way too much in terms of individual and corporate agency. And that actually you need to see these these networks, whether these networks are social networks or cryptocurrency networks or online games or AIs, that, that all, all these networks share certain characteristics to them in terms of sheer, you know, size and speed and their ability to 
you know, produce feedback-driven effects that just happen spontaneously. And those, which I call the three Vs, uh, volume, velocity, and virality, um, are, are, are what differentiate a meganet from sort of what we think of as, as a, what we tend to think of as what our networks today. And what, what the determining factor, I think, the, the real difference has been the addition of hundreds of millions of users exerting actual influence on these networks that um, that this is, you know, I used to work at Microsoft and Google, and I would say that we never foresaw a time when we would have less control over our systems uh, because we assumed that because we wrote the code and administered it, even if the systems were getting larger, we would still have a certain degree of control over, um, you know, what the algorithms were. But that's changed. What happens now is that, um, whether in AI, whether it's human produced training data being dumped into it, that's certainly not authored by programmers, or whether uh, in the case of, uh, you know, social networks, recommendation engines, you name it, um, those algorithms are constantly being shifted and influenced by people who are interacting with them. And that does give every user a little bit of control, not decisive control, but in some that does take away the control from the people who uh, build, program, and administer these networks. And it's that interaction of the human and the uh, compute computational component uh, at a speed and size faster for, than we can keep up from. We can't you know, moderate it or get out ahead of it because there's just too much going on. It's happening too quickly. That's the defining factor of a meganet. And it's why I feel that our existing terminology isn't good enough to capture it because we're looking at these pieces in isolation. We treat it as, oh, there's the tech company or there's the uh, hardware network or there's the algorithms or there's the user base. But in actuality, it's the interaction of these pieces that's producing uh, unprecedented phenomena that I think we're having a difficult time getting a hold of. Right. And and one of the, the, the senses that I got from your book is that, you know, it goes beyond just the uh, individual users having, um, you know, having an effect where it, it, it's uncertain. Like, it's not something as simple as, oh, you know, people like cat videos, so then we get cat videos. Like, that you could wrap your head around. But it's more like, um, oh, like, you know, like... Uh, uh, legitimate users and trolls and people trying to make money uh, all kind of come together. And, um, you know, sometimes the, the effects are, are really uh, uh, surprising and hard to figure out where they're coming from. Uh, would you right. say that's, yeah. Yeah. And, and, you know, historically, we have not thought of software in this way. We think of software as you program it and you ship it and it does what you tell it to and you fix the bugs. Uh, but that's not that's really not the case anymore. It's much closer to something like an economy or even something like the weather where you're looking at systems where you can certainly exert influence, but you can't track it uh, because there's simply too much going on that you're never going to catch up with it. And in, in effect, you're either, you know, you're playing whack-a-mole or you're solving the last crisis, even while a new one um is already being produced and you don't even know about it until it's too late. Um, so, yeah. But we aren't used to thinking of technology in those terms. 
obviously. <laughs> um, and, and that's why I feel that we really do need to change our uh, how we perceive and think of these systems, because uh, as long as we think of them as controllable in the way that software traditionally has been controllable, we're just going to be smashing our heads up against the wall. And, uh, you know, I don't I will don't hesitate to criticize tech companies, but I also think that asking them to do things that they literally can't do is not going to be helpful either. Yeah, and this is uh, this not a question I write down, just just coming off the top of my head. Like, I I think this is something that the people on the front lines, like you know the 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 product managers, the engineers, and and the and the users themselves, sometimes understand more than the 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 leadership at a at a company when it's like. No, this thing, like the users are doing with this thing something you never intended. I, this happens up as S at Foursquare, and it's it's this product is not what you you think it is. And so, I mean, I, I don't know. Sometimes you see, um, sometimes you see leadership being like, "Well, we want it to be this way, so we're we've got to kind of you know ban this behavior and that behavior." But then you know, there's also kind of the the strategy of well, kind of let the users. Do what they want, and then, well, sometimes you go down a, a deep, dark place in that. But sometimes you get, you know, uh, sometimes you get beautiful results where people kind of self-organize and, and sort of figure out how to solve their problems that you weren't even trying to solve. It's tricky. I mean, you know, I think there's a consensus that total anarchy it does not lead to um, happy results. But the problem is, is that uh, it's a question of who exerts control how the, that control ex is exerted and uh, and avoiding unintended consequences. Um, you know, it's clear if you look at the history of Twitter over the last year or so, Elon Musk obviously went in thinking he could sort of just like smash his fist and uh, get Twitter to be what he wanted it to be. Um, and it seems pretty clearly that that hasn't happened, that that. that you know, maybe you can do that as far as like demanding that cars be made a certain way, but it's different when you don't, you literally don't have control, that degree of control over the system that you're running. And, um, uh, um, and you see this in other instances too, that in the run up to the 2020 election, Facebook, um, banned all political advertising. That's not the action of a company that can, you know, make fine-grained delineations of uh, of accurate versus misleading advertising. They limited yeah. link forwarding so that you couldn't forward any link to more than five people. This is not again not the action of a company that uh, that can do that can do content-based filtering. And the question isn't uh I don't think it comes from a lack of will on their part. I don't think it comes even from a monetary incentive in, in their part. I, I think it literally comes from an incapacity, from incapacity, that they are managing their systems to the degree that um, that they can generate effective results. And it doesn't stop them from, you know, from them and other companies from doing these sorts of like more um, individualized crackdowns. But I don't think anybody thinks that they make a huge amount of difference. Uh, again, it's, it's a white game of whack-a-mole. Um, right, right. And so you said, it's interesting you said like the total anarchy doesn't lead to good results, but then there's also the other end of the spectrum, which is like, 
you know, uh, sort of a total dictatorship where you somehow think you're going to have complete control. And that's, I mean, not only does it not lead to good results, it sounds like it's just impossible. It's funny. I mean, I, I've had some people act as though they think that, um, that removing what they deem as problematic content from the internet is just a matter of will. And I, I just don't see how you can get to that. I think that, you know, there's a subset of content that the overwhelming majority of society deems to be unacceptable. You know, you know, um, child pornography, for example. In that case, when you have that level of collective unified will, that, yes, you can get somewhere on. But that's a distinct minority of content, and you know, thank God for that. Uh, but when it comes to something like misinformation, or even what one might deem toxicity, you're in much more of a gray area. You know, it, absolutely. Uh, you know, most people are not pedophiles, but uh, every you know, I think everybody is a little bit toxic sometimes. And, yeah. Good Everybody luck. disagrees. Yeah, good luck figuring out what truth is in today's age. So the thought that you could administer that in 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 any sort of top down way, in and in a way that wouldn't cause you know a, some significant segment of the population to be very unhappy with it is uh, it feels like a non starter to me. That that once you get into the content realm. You're, you're playing with fire and you have both the problems of adjudication and simply the problem of, of, of actually implementing it. So even if you could actually identify um, sort of a criteria for, you know, like verbal content saying, okay, look, we don't want people to express such and such a bigoted sentiment uh, online. We... It is language is too rich and flexible to to do a good job. And, you know, you see this on Facebook where some I think everybody has friends saying like, oh, I just got banned and I don't even know why for like two weeks for being toxic or something. Whereas there are other people where you can see that are posting incredibly vile stuff who seem to get a completely free pass. And it's yeah, it's because you need human moderation to do it. Human moderation isn't isn't that perfect. Uh, it is imperfect to begin with, and there are, and they are using machine pre-filtering, which is that much more imperfect as well. Yeah, it's and it, it almost seems like, and again, off the top of my head, like you know, if you come up with these vague terms like like toxic, oh, you're going to get banned if you're toxic. Then, if I have like a, an enemy out there who I want to get banned, I have an incentive to tell the tell the the, the benevolent rulers like, hey. Right. This is toxic activity right over there. So, you know, to get my, gets, to get my person banned. So yeah, you kind of expand what's toxic. That gets to, I think, the issue of virality, which is that these systems are feedback driven. You're never stepping into the same data stream twice that that, you know, even whether what humans aren't so consistent to begin with. But even the algorithms, if you have a dream of an algorithm that's identifying bad content or any type of content, true, false content, whatever, misinformational content, that algorithm is going to be tweaked and massaged as well in terms of how people interact with it. So, you know, you're in this constant state of flux and expecting anything to hold up to uh, to real scrutiny 
it's just not going to happen. And I think we're seeing this in a more visible way with AI, where you know AI suddenly generates you know non-existent court cases, and people are like, "Why the heck did it?" <laughs> And it's like, well, because it literally has no conception of what's true and what's false. It's just generating text probabilistically. And, well, you know, that's the that's the state of the art AI. And indeed, the filters that are filtering content uh, uh, through AI or whatever aren't doing much better than that. Yeah, so uh, I started this podcast about five years ago, and I remember reading a quote in one of the early episodes uh, from from Mark Zuckerberg saying like you know all this um, all this abuse and bullying and misinformation we're going to use AI to solve the problem and within five to ten years uh, it's going to be um, you know the, the technology will get there and I was very skeptical at the time and it's not because I think you know Mark Zuckerberg is is clueless and doesn't know how to f- figure things out and, and I certainly don't think that of, of Elon Musk either but 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 I certainly was skeptical but maybe didn't have the the, the language to describe why to be skeptical of this. You say that the use of AI and deep learning in order to tame the meganets has actually made them even more predictable. Um, why, why is this? How do, you, how do you think about this problem? Uh, which problem specifically? The AI problem? The yeah, making, problem. Making, um, making, uh, making meganets even more predictable than they, than they otherwise were rather than you know, t- taming them and trying to get them under control. Wait, predictable or unpredictable? Unpredictable. Oh, unpredictable. Sorry. Uh, well, I think that you know a lot of the problems come from the, the the congealing of of what I call narrative bunkers. That you know the the metric for what content is shown to people is that amorphous term engagement, which is give people more of what they seem to like. And that's sort of the way of throwing the the filtering problem back at at the users. So the companies are saying, okay, well, you know, we're just giving people what they want. We're not exercising any bias or judgment on that. But there's certain effects that follow from that, and giving people lots of what they want isn't always a good thing. Um, but you don't have to. Uh, but the issue, because you know, you're going to start clustering people together but who believe exactly the same thing and become that much more impatient with people or even incomprehending of people who believe anything else. Uh, the question is, is if you're not going to reinforce that by, by constantly showing people more of what they've already been seeing, what do you replace it with? That's when it becomes prescriptive. You start saying like, oh, okay, well, we'll show them the truth. No, that's bad because now, okay, now you've got a company in the way in the business of adjudicating truth. So my recommendation is that instead you look in a more non-targeted way. You start administer, you start showing, you start showing people simply disparate aspects of content without trying to get into rating it. Uh, at least, at least you do less less of it than than we're trying to. You don't put like content warnings saying like this might be misleading. Let's we'll go and you go to this website. Those don't seem to work. Those seem to just make people feel that much more aggrieved. Like oh, they're they're uh, really you know uh, <laughs> they're really fighting the power or what what have you. Um, so uh, it doesn't necessarily need to be more unpredictable, but I do think it, it should be um, less directed and less um, homogeneous, that you're looking to, as a way to sort of break up the feedback loops that, that keep pushing things in one direction. 
So mm -hmm. if our problem is that these meganets tend to accelerate out of control, if you can intervene in ways that cause them to go in opposite, multiple opposite directions simultaneously, you may get, they may start to cancel each other out rather than producing nasty positive feedback effects. Now, you know, you're going to need to do some um, experimentation to see exactly uh, uh, exactly what works and what doesn't there. But just the fact that, you know, Facebook was trying non-targeted mechanisms, even if they were ham-fisted ones of, okay, well, you know, just stamp out, uh, you know, limit forwarding, stamp out all political advertising. You know, well, that certainly does something, and it did something that didn't make them get them charged with bias. So... What is it you know, that says that, okay, that, that's an area in which we can see that we can do some sorts of interventions that aren't going to uh, be just sort of banging our head against the wall or, you know, throwing pebbles uh, into, 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 the, into a hole. Yeah. Um, so, so there's one part of the book that kind of that blew my mind. I had to, like, tell the person next to me when I, when I read it. And I'm surprised I never heard of this story before, but it was the story about the... Um, 400,000 people in China who were mining gold on, on Warcraft. Yeah, um, yeah, this far. is like, and I felt like, what a waste of human effort um, of, of work. How, how did this happen? Um, and what, what is that story? What do you think is the takeaway from that story? And, and like, does it tell us anything about how, how digital currencies might evolve? Yeah, it, I mean, it's funny because, you know, that story is like 15, 20 years old now. That's a, it, Those things still go on, but the peak of it was in the first decade of the century. And uh, Steve, yeah. Steve Bannon was in on the action. He was trying to broker a deal between, I want to say, like Goldman Sachs and some and some gold, gold farming companies. <laughs> That's um, crazy. Uh, it, it's crazy, but I mean, this is, uh, in, in some ways, I think it was a good... Uh, you know, in in effect, you're getting labor turned into uh, turned into exchangeable currency, even if it's mm -hmm. uh, even if it's illegitimate and and limited currency. And yeah, that does anticipate some of what we see today with cryptocurrency, except it's being done with uh, with processing or, or GPUs. Um, what what are the takeaways that that again the sheer connectedness. And, and the ability for um, for even unofficial economies to be set up in ways that get around um, regulatory apparatus, uh, that's not going away. Mm, you know, right now there's, I think, a, a tremendous effort to, I think, get a grip on cryptocurrency and rein it in, especially after the, you know, FTX, Sam Bankman, Freed stuff last year. Um, and I do think that there will be some consolidation, especially since uh, a lot of the smaller currencies are just sort of dying out at this point. But uh, the nature of these systems, and the point that I make, is that they don't admit the level of control that you get with a central bank. And even if you set up central bank-like systems for cryptocurrencies, which I assume will come into being uh in spite of uh, the intended uh the intentions of cryptocurrencies founders even if you do set those agencies up there's going to be more anarchy implicit in it simply from the degree of interconnectedness and the speed of interaction and the lack uh, the absence of um the need for uh sort of sort of a central hub 
uh, controlling it. Uh, and it's not, uh, it's not like there aren't forces in the opposite direction, but I do think that it's going to be an ongoing issue in a way that we, we, you haven't seen with traditional currencies. And I mean, you, you know, you have seen it a little with traditional currencies and high frequency trading and stuff. It's just that that was still more confined to high, um, uh, high profile institutional investors. If you could have a bunch of people join together and form the equivalent of some kind of investment bank and do the sorts of crazy things that investment banks have been doing, what happens then? Well, I think we're going to find out. Yeah. Oh, is that like the uh, the the Dow or in the early days of Ethereum? Yeah. Where, yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I, I remember that. I could. I mean, could, we could repeat that story where. You yeah, know, it I was... talk about that in the book. Yeah, that the Dow was an example of of of. Uh, levels getting blurred because it was such a mess they had to change the baseline rules of ethereum to 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 clean up the mess uh and then you know you can't do that on a regular basis so the mere fact that it would had to be done is a really worrisome thing yeah i i remember that happening and it was it, it i remember i remember it being like quite shocking to the to the industry and and what's more is like even though they reversed the the hackers' coins, the hacker still has their coins on Ethereum Classic, which right. still They're exists still to this yeah, day. Yeah, I think what, it was like ninety ten or something, was it? Like the uh, like ten p. Oh, 10%. What? Some, well, yeah, I think it's. I think it at some point it was actually a lot higher, but but now it's it's Ethereum Classic has fallen quite a bit compared to. Ethereum, but I think there was a point where it was almost like three to one, two to one. I, I could be off, but the, well, like, if you just look at the not, high, you know, not the not the not the price, but the number the in when the fork, how many users went with? Oh, what, yeah, what, I don't. What the vote was. I feel like it was like ninety ten or something, but I can't. I can't. Yeah. I, I wouldn't be surprised if that's correct. Yeah, that sounds. Uh, but yeah, yeah, that uh, you know that that. The, those forks are problematic. And the thing is, is that the fix was really ugly, uh, that they basically were implementing a lower level. Uh, a, they were implementing a lower level fix for something that had gone wrong at a higher abstraction level, which, yeah, is horrendous. You're never supposed to do that. Um, I get why you would want, I get, I mean, under the circumstances, if you're faced with what seems like it could be an existential crisis in your cryptocurrency, what are you going to do? Uh, the issue though, is that, uh, you know, the underlying circumstances that allow for that sort of thing haven't gone away. Um, and you still have the capability for, um, for, for forks to happen under a, under under increasingly uh, stressful circumstances. And I mean, that gets into a lot of cryptocurrency stuff that we don't have to pursue right now. But uh, I, the point that I want to get back to is that these systems have a certain amount of chaos built into them because of what I say is their velocity, uh, volume and virality that 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 is going to remain untamable. And especially once you get into the economic realm, you're looking at things that could, you know, impact the larger economy uh, that what we saw last year, uh, you know, because cryptocurrency was sort of siloed off from the greater economy for a while, while it was a niche thing, but that's stopping. You're seeing more and more cryptocurrency merge with, you know, the traditional economy. 
And that means that whatever goes on in cryptocurrency is going to have a greater and greater effect on things that we wouldn't think have anything to do with cryptocurrency. Just because we don't spend it on a day-to-day basis doesn't mean that it can't um, tank our economy. Yeah. So, I mean, a couple of things to say about that. I mean, so sometimes I wonder, you know, what would have happened? To, what, where would Ethereum be today if they just said, well, sorry, you know, it's all Ethereum classic. We're just not going to... Uh, you know, we're just not going to undo that. Um, I don't know. I don't know if I could predict it. I don't. I don't know if I. I, I would advocate that that's what they should have done. It's. It's. It's kind of an interesting uh, what if of, of history. Well, um, if given that you know a large majority of their users did not want that, presumably they they could have instituted a fork anyway. If you can get enough users on your side, you can force it. So there is that aspect of, of majority rule. Mm, so but it would have, it, yeah, it, it was almost unstoppable then. But, you know, if you think of a case where it's more 50-50, that's when, you know, that's when you can get uh, a lot. You know, a fork is dependent. You can survive a fork as long as most people come down on one side. And the very early Bitcoin failures, it was almost unanimous. It was like, oh, there's a bug in the code. We've got to fork it in this way. Mm. Everybody do this. And at that time, the community was small enough. That it was like, OK, great. We'll just follow the we'll just follow the, the the leaders on this. But when you get into increasing gray areas, that's when it's like, OK, well, now you really do have to get a large number of people to commit. Otherwise, it does fork. Um, that, that that's analogous to to what you said before about social networks, where it's like there are certain things that virtually everyone agrees is you know objectively horrendous, and then that stuff we're not so worried about. Right, and so if you if you get into a scenario where there's some split down the line that greatly favors like half of the cryptocurrencies. Uh, users and greatly disfavors another half, you're going to have to have some sort of like uniform mechanism. And I suspect that as you get a buildup of like institutionally administered cryptocurrencies, there probably will be those, but it's dicey. That's the thing is that, is that you're, you're playing with fire, even no matter how many institutional controls you try to build into it, you're, you're still going to run the risk that, um, you still don't control it to the degree that, say, a central bank controls a um, a country's currency. Yeah, it's and, and so I I want to kind of dive into the the idea that these these meganets kind of spill over into the general economy or, or cryptocurrencies as, as one example. Um, I'm sort of remembering. You know, before there was 2021 in crypto, there was 2017, and yeah. that was another high. And and around that time. Uh, you know, we were holding, uh, you know, we were holding brainstorms about, okay, we have this game where you win virtual coins. Everyone's telling us you got to turn this into a, uh, you got to have an ICO and you got to turn this into a a cryptocurrency. And and we were looking at it and we're like, look, if we give people real money for playing this game, uh, cheating, which is already a problem, is going to become an industry. And it's like, well, that's, that's really scary. And so I'm kind of glad we didn't do that. Uh, but I guess the, the question that I have down here, uh, I mean, maybe you comment on that as well, is what does it mean for Meganets to connect and consolidate? And, and, and why, do they, why do they do this? Uh, uh, you know, does this mean that we're destined to kind of live under some kind of government monopoly of our online services, or are we going in a different direction? 
Well, I th- you know, the issue is, is that is that uh, in ge- you you get gains in efficiency and functionality when you when you when you when you merge things together. This is why even though people aren't happy with Facebook, it's very hard to split off because of network effects. Likewise, that same uh, that same inertia tends to drive networks to coalesce, and once they coalesce, it's hard to. Uh, to take them apart. Facebook has become, you know, an audit, sort of a clearinghouse for lots and lots of data about people that aren't even signed up with them. Um, uh, the government, I mean, you can draw hard lines, like health information is still somewhat siloed off because of protections around that. Uh, you have to do it very consciously, though. And uh, in India, for example, you know, every user has a single identifying number called Aadhaar. Uh, and um, the number itself, the government doesn't track much besides it being some sort of like biometric identification, but um, non-governmental corporations and parties are piggybacking data associated with that number. So what you get is an increasingly large virtual network so that you are building up a profile. Even if the government only holds a small piece of it, they are still acting as the unifying glue. And I think that that's probably what you're going to see. Does the government control it? Well, whenever something goes wrong with Aadhaar, India is the Indian government is, is fond of pointing out that no, 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 that was a private company that did that. And for the most part, I think that's true. But that doesn't change the problem that it, since everything is hooked together, it feeds back it feeds back into both the public and private aspects of it. So uh, authoritarianism isn't quite the issue per se so much as the so much as the ripple effects that you're going to get from all these systems being tied together and that something going wrong locally can now spread through it uh think of it in terms of identity theft that um you, you know from an efficiency standpoint it would be great to combine my social security number, my driver's license, my benefits card, you know, you name all the various identifying numbers I have uh, with the government. You can see, however, how, what that means if, in the case of identity theft, that it just makes makes any um, violation compromise that much worse. And that's the sort of that's that's the sort of coalescing and and danger that you're looking at. That's the new world we got to get used to. Yeah. Um, this last question is, I don't know if it's going to have a good answer, but it's a little more provocative. Uh, so I, I, what I want to ask is, uh, it might be more difficult because of the sheer scale of these things, but what if I don't just want to talk about neg- uh, meganets or just be a, a user of one or, or, or a victim of one or beneficiary of one, whatever side you fall on? Let's say I actually want to build a meganet. What, what would that be something worth pursuing? Do you have any advice on that? Uh, I guess, well, you know, it's sort of an after the fact term that is describing sort of a system within society. You know, you can build a steam engine, but you can't necessarily build an industrial revolution or or an industrial city. You can, but it takes other factors. So you know, if you want to if you want to build one, you have to build a network that accumulates a sufficiently large number of people that are acting on it in 
you know, in 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 very tightly conjoined ways uh, at, at a speed. So you you have to you you don't build one so much as grow one. Um, uh, yeah, and it's like being a farmer. And yeah, and some of it and some of it is some of it is luck. Some of it is not necessarily under your control and being in the right place at the right time. You know, um, some of it is. You know, uh, if you look back at Facebook versus Friendster, Facebook definitely did things to expand their virality and attract uh, and compel their users in a way that, say, MySpace and uh, and Friendster didn't. So uh, I guess you can say you can you know what you want to do is is it increased participation and, and virality of it. Um, I don't know about the ethics of it because you're, you're effectively doing things that are getting people hooked on it, but the, that the, that's what you want to do. You want to do things that build growth at any cost. Yeah, yeah. Uh, interesting. All right, well, um, thank, perfect, uh, perfect on timing here. Uh, uh, really interesting book, Meganets by David Auerbach. Is there anything else that uh, you'd like to add to our discussion today? And um, where can we find you online? Where can we find out more about the book? Yeah, you can find me. Uh, I have a Substack, Our Stack, A U E R, and then Stack. Uh, <laughs> substack.com, where I've been talking about these issues as well. Uh, I'm on Twitter, and uh, uh, you can find me in the usual places. But uh, thanks for having me, Max. <laughs> and, I, yeah, fantastic. Thank you, David, so much for coming on the show. Yeah, uh, and uh, maybe see you back in New York. Yeah. Okay, take care. That's the show. To support The Local Maximum, sign up for exclusive content and our online community at maximum.locals.com. The Local Maximum is available wherever podcasts are found. If you want to keep up, remember to subscribe on your podcast app. Also, check out the website with show notes and additional materials at localmaxradio.com. If you want to contact me, the host, send an email to localmaxradio at gmail.com. Have a great week. Feel, feel the power.